My wife makes the best guacamole in the world. Uh, it's no contest, so like, I'm sure yours is nice, but once you taste hers, you'll agree, you'll just be like, oh, well, why am I still trying? This is, this is the ultimate guacamole here. So I thought I'd do a little demonstration for you today just to kind of show you a little bit of it. I wanted to present it to you. Now, there's some things uh, were a surprise as I got, you know, asked her to teach me, teach me your secret ways, oh, wife. And um, there are some surprises that I'll pass them on to you. Now, of course, the core, the very, you know, the center of every good guacamole is, of course, what? The avocado, and especially the Hass avocado. It's just got to be. This is the avocado that has won the culinary evolutionary battle among all avocados. 90% uh, of all avocados are Hass avocados because they're just amazing. They're like somewhere during the 20th century, some confluence of human and divine ingenuity came together to create this, and we haven't improved on it yet. Now, you would think that, well, so you actually start with the avocado, but you don't. You don't actually start with the avocado. Uh, there's a few things you want to do first here. And what I've done here is we've got some onions. And uh, we use, of course, red onions uh, for this because uh, for this, it tastes the very best. Red's got that sweet something to it. You know, white onions are good, especially if you're cooking with them. But red onions, if you're going to put it in something like this, it just plays well with everybody. Like a white onion is kind of like it shows up at the party with like a beer bong and like... Like, like, let's go, you know, they want to they party. But a red onion shows up in like sunglasses and a turtleneck and says, well, how are you doing? Like, it's all good. It's smooth. That's what you want to play with. So. so I've done some of this cutting beforehand because I didn't want to cry in front of you as I cut the onions as I did last night. So you get the onion. You put the onion in to your bowl first. Next goes the mighty cilantro. And you got to have cilantro, otherwise what you're doing is just eating mashed avocados, as far as I'm concerned. Now, I understand some people can't help it. They have like a gene where they can't eat cilantro, and it's so sad to me. And it like tastes like soap to them. Anybody have that? Raise your hand if you're a soap cilantro. Oh, yes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll pray for you. <laughs> but we're going to put that on in there. And this is just basically you take, take a bunch like this and just rip off the top half for a, a batch we're going to make here. This, this is about a half onion's worth of red onion. And I'll tell you why this is so important to us in the Hale household. We have a very diverse culinary mix in our home. And the guacamole, mama's guacamole, is the one unifying food among a very diverse selection of people. I mean, we've got a vegan in the family. We've got someone who like, can't have eggs and milk. We've got someone else who's allergic to nuts. We've got someone who only eats fried chicken nuggets. Uh, someone else who will eat anything as long as it's sugary and made of candy. Um, and it's so, it, like, this is the thing we all agree on. When mama makes her guacamole, this is when all of the factions come together, lay down their arms around the table with hands folded and await for the holy moment when she presents it. So we got, the, we got our cilantro, our red onion all diced up in there. I'm going to do is sprinkle a little bit of, drizzle a little bit of olive oil in there. And we're going to do that because it just sort of helps get everything uh, together. And then you mush this up. You're, gonna, you're doing this and you're like releasing something. I don't even know if it's, if it's spiritual or physical, but you're releasing some kind of essence out of this. There's like little aromas that start flying around that weren't there before and you and you you would uh, mix this together and you just kind of mush it down and it's kind of becoming 
combination of, of chunky and soft and all mixed. And, uh, and then that oil gets all over everything and it's good too. So we're doing all that. We're doing all that. Oh, one thing I did forget is uh, salt is very important. You can add the salt anywhere. It's actually good to add it during this little mixing portion because if you're using uh, kosher salt, which is a nice big thick grain, uh, then it, uh, it actually gets in there and helps to pulverize the other food. And don't worry about using too much salt. This is your chance to use salt. There we go, so we're gonna put it in there. It's all good. Because remember, some of these things that we're using are, you know, they're, they're gentle flavors, like an avocado. It doesn't have an overpowering, it doesn't slap you in the face. So, so it can use a little, you know, things that are more powerful to come along for the ride, like salt. So that's good. So we're going to put that in here and, and we're making a bunch today. All right. Now, here we go. So, and then uh, the one thing we couldn't do ahead of time, wow, is, uh, is cut these because, uh, you know, if you work, work with avocados, you know, avocados, um, they turn really weird colors really quickly uh, once they're, once they're out. And, uh, and these are good ones. I think we got, you know, avocado is a gamble. You never know what it's going to look like inside. Yes, we, we hit the jackpot with these guys. Praise the Lord. <laughs> these were good ones. Pinch that seed off. Don't try to grab it off because um, you will end up in the ER. I have ended up in the ER, but that was for falling through the ceiling. <laughs> That's a whole different object lesson. Now we can scoop the avocado. Now the star of the show, we can scoop the avocado into our pre-mixed uh, up onions and cilantro. I don't know if you're a guest today, you're wondering, what is this place <laughs> I've come? I thought this was church. I'm here to learn stuff and now I'm hungry. I want to, I would love to do a study of how many extra people will be going to Tex-Mex after church tonight, <laughs> right? We've got everything in there. Now, there's a couple extra things. Lime is very important. You want to put some lime in here? I got my handy little lime squeezer. I, I tend to... Uh, go heavy on the lime. I like more, I don't think you can do too much. You know, it's got that acid flavor and uh, just makes everything bright and shiny. Whoa, there we go. And then I will tell you about one other secret ingredient. We discovered about a year ago, this juice that they have in Japan, yuzu. Anybody ever use yuzu? Raise your hand if you know about yuzu. Yeah, come on. My, my, my fellow foodie over here. So yuzu is delicious. It's, it's a fruit from Japan. It looks like an orange. And it tastes a lot like a lime, and it is bold, let me tell you. And so I just do a little sprinkle. It's, it's a lot like a lime, but it kind of gives that sort of citrusy, orangey flavor in there, and you just can't beat it. Now, let's see. Do, 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 do. I think we've got everything. Now, you might be wondering, but Scott, what about the tomatoes? And I've got those. I've got the tomatoes, and a lot of people will put the jalapeno, right? The jalapenos. I have to tell you, if you put tomatoes in jalapeno, all of the, 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 the peace and the harmony goes away at the Hill House. All of that hard work we did to bring the factions together, they're, they're back at each other's throats. So we do not do the tomato and jalapeno. I'll tell you, and Mel has a good point too. She kind of, she has very strong feelings about this and she'll fight you about it, that the tomato is uh, overrated, that the tomato is a whole lot of flash and it's red. And so it's like, look at me. And it doesn't actually taste like anything. It's just a little bit chewy and takes up room of the delicious guacamole. And so, 
I tend to agree with her. I like it. It's, it is pretty. So sometimes I'll put it in there if nobody's looking. I'll also put a little bit of jalapeno. I even diced up some tomato and jalapeno. Just, I thought about it, but I'm not going to do it because you can do that later. You can put, add your own hot sauce or something like that. It, it's nothing wrong with, for sure, the jalapeno, but it is, a jalapeno is a very bold flavor. And uh, so if you put jalapeno in there, uh, you're going to, you're going to taste mainly mushed up jalapeno. That's my feeling on that. And here's, when I, when I mush it up here, uh, you kind of want to go easy. You want to go gentle. Like some people are like, you know, oh, I want to like a whip it up and get all the creamy guacamole. Like they want to turn it into like whipped cream. And I don't know, for some reason, there's a texture thing there. I like a little bit of smooth, a little bit of chunky. I like to like grab an avocado every once in a while in my mouth, you know, like, oh, what was that? That's an avocado. And so you mix it together, but it's okay if you got a little bit of of a chunk in there going on. All right. Now, I know I, we don't have like the cool cameras you can see, but see, look at that. Oh, it's so good. Are you getting hungry? Do you want some? I know. And then, of course, like I said, with all the kids with their hands folded, waiting for mama to bring it out, we bring out the chips. And as for me in my house, it is Tio Rosa. Uh, these are the ones. I mean, if you're going to make avocado, uh, guacamole this good, you don't want to waste it on a Dorito. So I'm just going to let you know if it's if it's everything I thought it was. You live vicariously through me. That's pretty good. That's why I add a little more salt. There we go. Mm. Perfection. Perfection. My wife's guacamole is the best in the world and I'll wrestle you for it. And that's it. I hope you guys have a great day today. God bless you. Yeah. So what is uh, fascinating uh, for me about my wife's guacamole, the primary ingredient, of course, is these um, avocados, Haas avocados, which at one point is connected to an avocado tree. Um, and the avocado tree is... It's connected down deep into the soil, which has its life source, and it gets, that's where it gets all of its nutrients and its minerals. And in order for that perfect engineering wonder of a Haas avocado to make it into, into my mouth, it has to be pulled from a tree. It has to be harvested. And once it's har harvested, uh, it is at that point disconnected from its life source. And so no matter how good that avocado, and it was very fresh. And it, I mean, when I cut it open, it was perfectly green. There were no little brown spots. Perfect, no matter how good that avocado looked. It's actually already dying because it's disconnected. Same with the onion, same with the lime. The lime was from a lime tree. It looked beautiful. It was pulled from the branch, disconnected from the tree. And so immediately, that beautiful lime and that avocado and all those things, they're dying. Every time, everything in my wife's guacamole, was at one time alive, but it had to give its life for me. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Uh, everything in this bowl, this bowl of joy, everything in it is actually dead. In order for me to eat it, it has to die. So food for it to give us life has to die first, right? This is why Twinkies aren't so good for you. <laughs> um, like Red Bull guy, yeah, well, it's green like a vegetable. No, no. See, there was never actually anything in that Red Bull or that Twinkie. It was never to, to, alive to begin with. 
So, so we see this in the nutritional realm, in, in all over the place, that, that death brings life. This fascinating truth, that death brings life. What will be on your plate today, after service, when you go to lunch, if it's anything nourishing at all besides, a, you know, a Twinkie, whether it's a plant or an animal, the things on your plate are dead. And the life they've given up for you, they've given that life up so that you can live. So we see the same principle uh, at work all over the natural world, the circle of life and everything. Everything is eventually eaten by everything else, right? The ecosystem functions on this principle. The little worms in my yard get eaten by the bird and the bird dies and it gets eaten by the grandkids of the worm that the bird first ate, right? Everything, in order to live, something has to die. It's just the way it is. One of the strangest mysteries of the world to me, manure. Oh my goodness. So like, here's this thing. It used to be life. It was food. It became food. It became part of the system, digestive system of this big animal here. And it was eliminated, right, as, as waste, as something like we would throw away. It's stinky. It's nasty. It's this dead pile. But you pile it up and you put it in your garden and it brings life. Fertilizer, right? Comes from the word fertile, fertility. You're right, that's fertilizer. And so in the physical realm, we see this. In the, nation, in the nutritional realm, in the health realm, somehow death brings life. And, and so this isn't just some kind of like spooky, you know, spiritual esoteric idea. It's something that is true about how the world works. Like the very fabric of the universe works this way. Some of the most important metals that we have today, heavy metals and, and things like phosphorus and gold and lead are only here, they are only come from the, the dying of a star, from a supernova explodes, right? And it releases these heavy metals all around the, the universe. So the reason why we have things in even in our body that we have to have, like phosphorus, lithium, some of these chemicals that make our, make our lives better, come from the dying of a star that exploded uh, however long ago. So from our diet, from our, the ecosystems, the environments, fertilizing flowers, from technology, superchips, use these, use these uh, substances that came from a star exploding. Now let's take this a couple steps further. If you were um, 30 years old or more, uh, you probably remember what you were doing on Tuesday September 11th, 2001. Um, if you, you know, were old enough to, to remember. I remember very vividly. I wasn't a minister back then. I, I just got out of grad school. I was working at a company in downtown Austin, Texas, up in a building. And uh, the television started coming on. And, you know, you remember probably where you were when all that was happening. We were watching these images, uh, watching these. One of the most moving things I remember is the images of these firefighters who were risking their life running into the buildings that everybody else was running out of. Everybody remembers, of course. Can you believe that's already t over 20 years ago? 20 years ago. And they kept running into the buildings up until the moment the towers could no longer hold their weight and they collapsed with everyone inside, including these heroes who had run in to risk their life so somebody else could have life so this is deeply moving. These kind of acts are deeply moving to us as a people. When we hear about a firefighter who climbs up a staircase that's on fire, rescuing somebody who gives their life or risks their life, and, and so that person can live, 
it moves us in ways that we can't even explain. Even after all these years, it's, it's like, like it, it stops you in your tracks. And it's interesting, every year since then in New York City, they, they commemorate those moments, you know. And in those firehouses where those firefighters came from, they both mourn and celebrate those guys the guy, and men and women. They're mourned and celebrated because something about it in the midst of all that just awful pain, agony, just hell on earth, all of that going on, there's something within us that says what they did is beautiful. It's, we can't even put it into words. Maybe we can't articulate it. But there's something inexplicably priceless and beautiful about somebody giving their life for another human being. Would you agree? Yeah. And it's interesting. We use some very interesting language uh, when we talk about these kind of feelings. Just stay with me here. We're going somewhere. We talk about how inspiring it is. Inspiring. Inspire comes with the Latin word spire, which means spirit or breath. And so when we talk about something being inspiring, we're saying that it gives breath. It breathes life into us. Their act inspires, it breathes life into us. We say it's inspiring. It gave, we're saying it gave me life somehow in some strange way. Or when we talk about something expiring, right? Like, dude, that milk is expired. It has, all the life has left it, right? And if you drink it, you will expire, right? There, it, it, like, it's the opposite. So we remember things like 9-11, the people who gave their life for another human being. We acknowledge their, their sacrifice, their death, their expiration. They gave their life, the life that left them. And that was somehow inspiring to, to us in some mystical way. Their death brings life to the living. Maybe you've had somebody do something for you uh, one time that was just way above and beyond like just normal what, you know, an acquaintance would do for you. Maybe they sacrificed for you in some very significant way. Maybe they gave you something. Maybe they paid for something. You had something due and it was, it was like past due and they paid for it. Or they spent time and energy helping you in a way that you knew they were busy people, but they did it anyway for you. And, and their sacrifice was kind of like a sort of, of dying, right? To themselves, they were dying in order to live for you. And it inspired you. It moved you. Why is that? Because death brings life. It's just a law of the universe. Death brings life. Let's explore this idea in scripture because We've seen this is already true, like relationally, sociologically, um, organically, nutritionally, culinarily, galactically. It's a true, it's, it's just a truth. So when the Bible talks about God giving us life, what does the Bible say about how he goes about doing it? Turn with me over to the book, if you have your Bible, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Notice the language the writer uses here about God, what's used to describe God giving us life. He says, for since we believe that Jesus, what's your word say? Died. It rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. So, you know, the, the very central claim of these early Christians uh, was that Jesus had died. He really had died. He didn't just like fake his death and he was just sick and he got better. He really died. This was a very big deal to them. And there was a reason why 
it's the whole reason why God became a man, when you think about it. Because in his natural form, supernatural form, God, you know, the Father up in heaven, there are certain things even an omnipotent, eternal God actually can't do, namely, die, right? You just can't. He's like, I tried it, I can't do it. Can't die. And so at the cross, Jesus' death is God coming to earth for the purpose of dying. And through this, this death, somehow we are brought to life. It brings us life. Let's look at a couple other texts here. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ, what did he do? Died for us. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. So these were the central claims of the first Christians. Over in Romans, he says, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. So death, bringing life, it's already true all over the universe. We see this is already true all over the universe in in the very fabric of how like creation works. It's just how things work. So the first Christians understood that when God gives us life, Well, how's God going to do it? Through a what? A death. He's going to do it through a death. God gives us life through Jesus' death. Now, you're probably sitting here, uh, and uh, unless you're you're very, very new to this Jesus story, you're probably thinking to yourself, this is not news to me, Scott, right? I did go to Kids World when I was little. I understand, right? You're wondering, do I have anything else here? Is this a lot of flash with like, no, is this the tomato of sermons? Just a lot of like, look, I'm red. No, let's scratch the, we're just scratching the service here. We're going to go further. Check this out. If the cross is true, if the cross is true, then what does the cross mean for us now? What does it mean for us today? Not just in history. We talked about last week how this cross is victory in disguise, because Jesus said, take heart through the cross. I've overcome the world, right? I've triumphed over evil. And, and the moment that looked like Christ's greatest defeat, you remember last week we talked, it, it looked like his greatest defeat was actually his moment of total triumph. And, and because of that, we too can triumph, even in our moments when it seems like we are being defeated. That can be our moment of triumph. So how is this other aspect of the cross true for us today? This idea that through death comes life. What does that mean for us? And not just like in the sweet by and by when we die someday. What does it mean for us like Monday morning? What does it mean for us in a few minutes when you're out in the parking lot driving back onto the street? What does it mean for us then? Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 16. So Matthew 16. So when Jesus comes among us, he keeps talking about this new life he's bringing. He talks about the kingdom. That was the main thrust of his ministry is the kingdom, the kingdom. It's this new way of living, this new mindset to have where God rule and reigns in our lives and we just shine that out to other people. And so he keeps talking about this new way of living, but he keeps characterizing this new life as something that's freeing and, and it's powerful, but it also requires us to undergo a sort of death. And it's often puzzling to the people he's talking to because they didn't like that part. In Matthew 16... The Gospel of Matthew, it says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my my followers, in other words, if anybody wants to become a Christian, we would just say, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Take up their cross and follow me. So to deny yourself is essentially to die 
to yourself in order for someone else. Die to yourself in order to live for someone else. He says that's how we follow in the way, the, the footsteps of Jesus. We want to follow in his footsteps. And then he says, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. I understand that's a bit haiku, you know, when you hear that. But when Jesus talks about real life, like the kind of life where you're fully alive, you are getting everything out of what God has put you here for. Like you're, you are living in your purpose. How many of you crave to have that feeling? Like, God, I just want to do my purpose. Right? Sometimes you ever feel like, I feel like I'm just like out of step with something. I feel like I'm not doing everything you put me here to do. To, to, to really feel that way, you're getting everything out of it. He talks about it in terms of a death. He says, deny yourself. And that means if anybody's still just sort of like grasping hold of their life, they're just going to lose it. The harder you squeeze, you're just going to lose it. If, but if they let go, like if they die, then they get their life. So what's he getting at here? Now, interesting side note that occurred to me this morning. Uh, what happens to a fruit or a vegetable if it's not harvested at the, at the proper time or harvested in time? What happens to it? It stays and it sort of keeps growing maybe fat for a little while, but then it rots. It like splits and gets soft and falls and looks nasty and it falls to the ground and it ruins, it spoils, right? And it is now good for nothing because it never gave its life for anything, right? So think about people who are selfish. Selfish people live in a, a, a progressively shrinking world. And I won't ask you to raise your hand, but maybe you're sitting here today and if you were kind of honest, you were like, yeah, I'm kind of selfish. I'm kind of selfish. I, selfish people, their life is all about them, right? Your life is all about you. And your world is getting progressively smaller by the moment because when our life is all about us, it is necessarily less and less about other people, right? It, you know, there's only so much life you got. So if it's all about us, it's less about others. And so all of that life inside, that force, that energy is inside, it's directed inward. It's sort of like this dead-end spiral. It's just like the little, the little lime on the tree that doesn't want to get picked. And, no, it just, and it just stays and it just grows. All that life is directed inwardly. But when I die to myself and I die, uh, I deny myself in order to live for other people, now I'm living for you. Living for you because I'm dying to my own selfish stuff. And so I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to, to live for you. And so people who are selfish, self-centered, their worldview can't help but get progressively smaller and smaller and smaller. Because the world is shrinking. The walls are closing in, right? Self-absorbed people, they get stuck in kind of a, a spiral. They become even more self-absorbed, more self-obsessed. Until there's really no longer any there there. There's nothing to them at all that anybody, you know, wants to hang out with. <laughs> if you know those kind of people. Meanwhile, people who serve, people who see that they're here to serve the world, that they're here to lay down their life and deny their self, their world is actually getting bigger. It's getting bigger because uh, if I'm serving you, then my life is no longer limited to the confines of my own skin. 
right? My life is no longer limited to what happens to me or doesn't happen to me, right? It's about you and you and you and you and you, right? And so it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That is why a community of people who really get a hold of this thing, they're other-centric. They're living for each other. They're, they celebrate with each other's joys and victories, right? Because your victory is my victory. I just like going to take credit for it. You did that? We did it. Yeah, we did. Yeah, way to go. Even though I might have done nothing, but we, we, it's a we. And if you're grieving, I grieve with you, right? We're grieving together. It can't help but be that way because that's what it means to live outside the confines of your skin, right? Now we're living for out. We're dying to ourselves. Who wants to just sit on the vine and keep living for this? There's so much more, right? I can be a part of your life and you can be a part of their life and his life and her life. And that's why you find people, I think, when you find people who are really dialed into Jesus. I mean, you know, there's like, I call them Jesus-y people. Those Jesus-y people. Not just people who learn a lot of stuff about Jesus. That's fun to do. But people who are becoming more like Jesus. Those kind of people, I find those people are usually more open-minded those people are more free. Their outlook is bigger. Their worldview is bigger. They're more generous. They're more gracious. They're, they view fewer people as enemies. It's an interesting thing because people are no longer, they don't view people as personal threats to their borders anymore. Now, people are just opportunities. Like, oh, new person. I'm going to go live through you too, Right? right? People are opportunities. They're not threats. It's a, so it's a whole different worldview because Jesus' way, his way of living is that you live for bigger and bigger things and more and more people because it's really not, a, not, not about you. It's really not about me, it's, right? It's really not. So Jesus says you take up your cross, uses this language, take up your cross and you die to yourself in order to live for others. Because if you grab and hold a life too tightly, you're going to lose it. But if you let go, you'll find it. He tells us this over and over and over. The same language comes up over and over and over. Crucify the flesh, right? Cru I mean, he couldn't make it any more plain. This is the way of the universe that God created. So it makes a whole lot of sense, right? Jesus says, take up your cross. If you're grabbing hold, you're going to lose it. What a fascinating way to articulate what, uh, what it means to really live. Have any of you ever had a moment where you are, uh, you saw somebody give something of themselves to somebody else. And it was, you know, it wasn't under compulsion or they weren't guilted into it. They just, it was just this pure, voluntary, beautiful act of generosity. And it's like shocked you. It, in, it moved you. Anybody ever see anybody do something like that? It inspired you. It gave life into you in some strange way, right? Something within you said that. That is living. I, I've, I've seen people do things and thought, I wish I could be that way. I wish I could be like that. Because they look like they're alive. That is living. That's the gospel on display, which it really is. It makes sense. It's the gospel on display because the, when we die to ourselves, we're being image bearers of the one who died for us, who died for us on the cross. He died in order to bring us life. And so when we die to ourselves, we're being image bearers of him, right? You are never more Jesus-y than when you let a piece of you die for someone else. You're never being more like Jesus than those moments. Oh, man. Okay. We've got to hurry this up. Home life is going to be so good uh, this week. I encourage you to make it. Home life just started. Um, let's take this a little further. 
God creates a universe that brings life through death. We see it all around, from avocados to quasars. God gives us life through Jesus' death. We see God gives other people life through our death. So when I die to myself, when I die to selfishness, uh, when I die to greed, and by the way, uh, that's why some people have, always have to be right. Right? You, you ever met someone like that? They have to be right. They have to win the argument. Even if inside they know they've been proven wrong, they still got to win. You ever met anybody like that? Like, you know you won, but they've got to win. They will go down with the ship before they lose the argument. You know anybody like that? Are you like this? <laughs> they will go down in a ball of flames even if they're wrong. Why? Because they refuse to die. They just refuse to die. They, there's, there, there's something about dying in that moment that they're afraid of. It's a fear. I think it's really a fear. We get afraid of dying. Or maybe, or maybe you're somebody who has a hard time apologizing. How many of you have ever had somebody come to you and they just said, I'm sorry. I did this thing. I was wrong. And it was just like, I never thought they would do that. It like, it was this life-giving moment. Why? Because if I apologize, what I am doing is dying to my need to be right right now. I'm dying to my need to have been in the right back then. Because it's only when you're willing to die to some of that that you really start to live. Jesus says this in Matthew, whoever wishes to be great among you, yeah, we want that, Lord, must be your servant. Jesus is like, you want to be great? All right, die to yourself. Paul says this in Ephesians, Ephesians, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is, oh, this is a great passage here. Paul's talking to the church. He's talking to us. It's the church in Ephesus, but it could be the church in spring. Generations Church, the book of Generations right here, 521. And he says, submit, generation folks, to one another out of reverence for Christ. So as image bearers of that Christ, we're image bearers of him. He's the Christ who laid down his life. It would seem that Christians are going to be people who lay down their lives for each other, who submit to each other. Well, and you're like, well, well, then who's in charge? Nobody. We're just submitting to each other, right? We're just trying to out-submit each other, right? Because Jesus is the one in charge, right? He's the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. We submit to each other. And so these are people who are going to, apparently people who serve each other, they give to each other. So if there's two of them, and there's one plate of food, they're going to be like arguing, no, you take it. No, you take it, right? That's, it's this, it's how Jesus people live. It's like one of the defining things about the church that it seems to be this community where people are dying for each other. They're serving and they're serving the world around them, right? Because they understand that death gives life. Death gives life. It's part of the universe. And so we're all submitting to each other. He goes on here. He, he gives us some, some examples. He, he, said, he brings it down, really practical stuff in the home. He says, wives, in the same way, do that to your own husbands. That submitting thing, do that as you do to the Lord. But he just said, submit to one another. So we're all submitting, right? So he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
So there's all this mutually submitting and loving and going on here. And apparently a marriage only works when you have people willing to die for each other. The recipe for a joyful marriage. I can tell you, Melissa and I, have we've sat with so many precious couples over the years. So many couples. And every one of them are beautiful and every one of them are, are unique little snowflakes. But they're all the same in one, one way. All of us. All of us are saying in one way. The, the, the recipe for joyful marriage is two people continually trying to out-submit each other. Trying to out-love, out-do, out-kind, out-die to one another in sacrifice and kindness and love. I'm just telling you. So, so if that spouse of yours that God blessed you with, if they, uh, maybe they just refuse to die... They're just all like uptight and like clinging to the, you know, their way or the highway and, and they just refuse to surrender an inch. Maybe you just need to say to them, you know what, honey, uh, tonight I'm going to make us some guacamole and we're going to talk about the truths of death and life and enjoy this together. Maybe that'll work for you. I don't know. It'll taste delicious anyway. A marriage only functions when two people die to each other. If it's like me, 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 then it falls apart. No, why is that? Because the gospel is true. Now that seems like an obvious statement, but the message of Jesus is true. It's the ultimate truth. It's not just something somebody made up. Someone didn't just go, this sounds good. Put this, write this down. No, death brings life. It is true. This is the universe God created. Death brings life. So it's true in marriages. It's true when we witness heroism on the news. It's true with the way we eat. It's true in our ecosystems, the circle of life, right? It's true all over the place. There was this brilliant uh, 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 priest and uh, philosopher uh, and author named Robert Ferrar Capone. He says, death is the engine of life. Death is the engine of life. This guy's so cool. I bought his books. I encourage you to check him out. In fact, you know what else he did? He wrote three cookbooks. Isn't that cool? <laughs> it's like he knew there's something mystical going on here when he was cooking one day, and he, he wrote three cookbooks. Um, it's what drives life. Death is the engine of life. So let's bring it home. Uh, last week, we explored a couple of things that the cross tells us. We could add this. The cross is truly God's way of saying that you're going to have to die in order to truly live. Do you really want to start living? Do you, are, are, are you ready to move past existing? Going through the motions, being religious maybe, or whatever it is. Maybe you're doing a great job at that. But do you really want to start living? Not like, not like some kind of lame, nasty, shriveled up, you know, avocado who didn't want to get picked off the tree. That's not living. Are you wanting to be fully alive and fully get everything out of this life and be a blessing to the entire world? Make the whole world so glad you were here, right? Then you got to die to what's killing you so you can really live. Maybe right now as you're sitting there, you can think of two or three things. If you're, if you're being honest, maybe you're thinking of a couple of things that, uh, that you have been living for that and it isn't life-giving. It's Twinkies and Red Bull. It's an imitation version of life. 
right? It, it, and it, it's, it, it's not good for your soul. And today you need to just say, I have been pursuing this. I've been living on this and it doesn't give life. It's not right. I need to die to it. I need to die to it. Are you hearing your, your life to this point has just kind of been all about you? It doesn't, it doesn't make you an evil person. I'm not saying you're a terrible person. You're just a human being. That's what means be, being hu- human is it's kind of all about you. And Jesus calls us to something new. He calls us to a kingdom that really is different than this little empire we're living in. If it's all been about you, making sure that you're properly defended, um, making sure that everybody knows that you got it all together, or if you don't have it all together, that everybody knows that it it was somebody else's fault, (laughs) right? Maybe the cross for you is this big rugged sign in the sky that like you got to die to all that once and for all. You just got to die to it all because it doesn't work. You got to stop clinging. You got to stop grasping if you want to really live. Paul says this in Colossians. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. He's talking about the stuff that's dead. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed which is idolatry. It doesn't bring life. He's not just trying to be like a killjoy. You don't have any fun. These are things that actually lead to nothing, emptiness, death. So, so it's almost like, why wouldn't you want to get rid of that, right? Why wouldn't you want to put these things aside? Put to death these things that are killing you. Put to death what's killing you so you can really live. Like, God, help me. Th- you know, the, the things I've been clinging to, the needs, I, I, I want it to have no more hold over me. I want to be free. I want to be fully alive. What else does he say? Rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger. Anger isn't life. It's death. Rage, malice, slander. We just put in parentheses here gossip, right? It's not life-giving. If you find yourself saying, ooh, I've got something to share with you, you've got to die to that. Amen. It's messed up. And filthy language from your lips. It doesn't bring life. It brings death. I've got to die to it. God, I got this anger I'm carrying around. I'm just, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of flying off the handle all the time. You need to die to it. I, I love this last one in Romans chapter 8. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, that's like having, you got the wind of God at your back because that's the word Spirit he uses here. It's the word for wind, right? You've got God at your back. And if you're like in God's flow, man, it says you, you put to death the misdeeds of the body and then you will live. Amen. So what does it mean for you to die so that you can really live? As we pray today, I invite, the, uh, I invite you to ask the Spirit to help you today. Let's all ask Him. Tell Him, say, God, I want to be fully alive. I'm ready to be fully alive. I want everything that you have for me. I, I just want to be like pulsating with everything that God intends for me to do to be. And even if that means that I'm going to have to die a lot, God, I am ready. I'm ready to take up my cross so I can truly live. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, this whole Lent season, we're reminding ourselves that it is through Jesus' death that we are given life. 
And we're so grateful, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, for the incredible uh, depths of truth that we're finding out at the cross. And I know, Lord God, I'm just scratching the surface here. We're not even close to everything there is to dive into here. But I sense that right now, this message today is what many of us need right now. This reminder. So please help us, Lord God, to reposition ourselves and our lives to have the cross at the center of how we live. Because we really want to live. God, we really want to live. We really, we want like no form of this lame religious type of half-life. We want the real thing. And God, for many of us, there's this growing awareness that there are things that we need to die to so that we can really, really live. Lord, we want our hearts to be with you right now. We want to be in harmony with you, Lord God. We want to We want you to come and shine your light inside us. And we thank you for forgiving us of our sins, Lord God. We know that you do. We thank you for cleansing us so that we can walk with you. Help us, Lord, to become more and more like Jesus every day. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen. If you'll stand to your feet, our prayer partners are coming forward right now. And if there's anything at all that you need prayer about, anything going on in your life, a healing in your body you need, something financial uh, need that you have going on, a relationship, you just need some deliverance maybe. In one of these areas that we've been talking about, maybe the Holy Spirit is pricking something, uh, you know, into your consciousness and you just, yeah, I need God to help me with that thing because it feels like a stronghold. They can pray with you and it's not the same when we pray. Or if you want to say yes to Jesus today for the first time, I encourage you to make that decision today. Amen. Amen. So my friends, the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. And may he help you to die to everything that he has already delivered you for on the cross. Amen. Grace and peace. Invite somebody to Easter next week. Grab a uh, little yard sign out of the hallways if there's still any left. And we'll see you later. Bye-bye.